This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. Welcome back to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. I am Molly Gamble with Becker's and delighted to have you join us for another episode filled with insights from healthcare leaders. Today from Steve Clasco, executive in residence with General Catalyst and former president of Thomas Jefferson University and former CEO of Jefferson Health. Steve, welcome. It's great to be with you today. How are you doing and, and where do we find you? Well, I'm doing great. And Molly, it's really an honor to be on, on this podcast. And uh Right this moment, I am in New York. I just got back from Sao Paulo, Brazil, actually, uh, this morning on uh, on the red eye. So, uh, so you know, please, if I say anything off the wall, then I'll just blame it on that. <laughs> on the jet lag? Yeah, that works out well. I, I don't have a red eye flight to blame for anything I might say, Steve. So you've got that leg up on me, at least. Um, well, I'm, I'm catching you. It's we're, we're nearing Thanksgiving as we record this. We're coming up in a couple more months on the one-year anniversary, right, since you joined General Catalyst as executive in residence. How is it going? What have you been up to? What's been demanding the most of your energy and time lately? Yeah, so, so you know, what, what's interesting is I worked for nonprofits for 40 years, I, you know, as a CEO, a president of Dean, and, you know, the ability to sort of um, really, really concentrate on the things that are, I believe, are going to be transformative has just been fantastic. So, my bar is, and like when, when I do my national talks, my bar is always, I have five grandkids. They call me Nini. What what things 10 years from now are my grandkids going to go, Nini, is it true that in 2023, X was true, right? So, you know, some, some of the uh, uh, GC companies I'm working with, and, and, and my theme has been same with when I was with Jefferson is, how do we take population health, social determinants, predictive analytics, and health equity, and move from them from philosophy to the mainstream of clinical care and payment models? So just to give you an example, there, there's, there's one company I'm on the board of, General Catalyst is invested in called Paradigm. And it's also partnering with the American Cancer Society, democratizing clinical trials. You know, if, if you're wealthy and, and you need to get a clinical trial with cancer and you can fly out to wherever or you can hire a nanny, that's one thing. But if you have to see your community oncologist, the difference is the infrastructure. And what we're doing is replacing that infrastructure so you can stay in your community. It really fits with what we did at Jefferson with the whole healthcare at any address, right? Like my C, if you came to my CEO's office in, in, in December of 21, it said, I hope five years from now, when Elon Musk brings people from Mars to Philadelphia and says, where's Jefferson, you can't define that. That we're defined by our care and caring. And I think the same kind of thing is true of what I'm trying to do with, with GC and the other places I work. The, the, the other piece is really helping the, the founders. When I first got to General Catalyst and, and Abundant Venture Partners, which I also work with, Basically, there were all these 28-year-old founders that came from Stanford and MIT, and they figured if they had AI in their title, they must be worth a billion dollars because that's how things were valued. So it was like, why is grandpa here? Now, they have to be scalable and sustainable, and I'm a little bit like Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid, you know, where it's like, you know, I, I, I understand what's happening and understand what's happening today. So one of the big issues is 
if you're going to a health system, you guys report on this all the time. I mean, health systems are really hurting financially. They're not doing anything wrong. The, the math just doesn't make a lot of sense. If you go to a health system CEO and say, my company can help you when we move to value-based care three years from now, what they're going to say is, hey, I'm having a heart attack, and you're like my plastic surgeon telling me you can move my liposuction up till next week. You know what? Why don't you call me in a year, bring the cardiologist in to help me with my heart attack. So what I'm trying to help companies do is, is show how they can be helpful today in this environment and be helpful for the future. Got it. And, and Steve, did you tend to see the big picture and look 10 years out when you were a health system CEO? Is that kind of the gravitational pull that you're most compelled to take versus the, the one to 18 months, three years, which can be very difficult, honestly, in terms of forecasting? Yeah, and, and, and it gets you in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, all of us, Molly, I'm sure you have, have had our aha moment. Uh, I had my aha moment in the early 2000s when I got to lead an advisory board, believe it or not, on digital health for Apple in, in the early 2000s. And if, if, if you, and it was right when Steve Jobs came out with the iPod. And, you know, if, if you went to the CEO of Gateway and said, what are things going to look like 20 years from now in 2023? That's whether it be even cooler laptops or cooler operating systems. Mm -hmm. Whereas Steve used to say, always think about what's going to be obvious 10 years from now and do it today. So, you know, my, my Jefferson experience and, and, and my whole healthcare experience was, that's what I did when I got to Jefferson, you know, I said, tell me something exciting. This is before we got $110 million from Sidney Kimmel. Tell me something exciting that would get somebody to really want to invest in this. And somebody, one of the faculty raised their hand and said, well, we're, we're below Penn on U.S. News and World Report, but we're higher than Temple and Drexler. So A, that's the opposite of exciting, and B, like, who gives a hang? You know, um, so I said, you know, what if we what if we took the exact opposite approach and became a 197-year-old academic medical center thinking like a startup company? Which, by the way, is how I met Hamon Tanasia, and we wrote, wrote, wrote the book together. So we invested like $30 million in telehealth back in 2014. But well, as you can imagine, that wasn't popular. Because that meant, you know, boy, you could have put that $30 million into NIH funding that would have gotten us closer to Penn in, 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 in NIH funding or U.S. News and World Report. So when I got to, to Jefferson and even when I got to GC, I try to think about what are the things, again, that, that 10 years from now are going to be game changers. Now, there's some things that are incrementally different that still need to get done. That, that just was never the stuff that I was most interested in. One, one of the things I'm working on is with 3D Systems, which is the largest 3D printing company in, 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 in the world, um, in New York Stock Exchange Company. They're partnering with United Therapeutics to bioprint lungs and, and, and breasts after, after breast surgery. So again, um, the concept will be, I believe, 15 years from now when my grandkids go, you know, Nini, is it true back in 2023 if you needed a kidney? Somebody actually had to take out their kidney. So those are the kind of really transformative um, changes. I'm working with Karen Knudsen, was the, um, was the head of my NCI Cancer Center at, at, at Jefferson. She's now the CEO of the American Cancer Society. So literally, she and I get together and we talk about what are the things that are a problem now in cancer? What are the three or four things that, if you could wave a magic wand, would help people diagnose, treat, and prevent cancer, especially across the underserved. And those are the things that I love to, to look at. Well, you mentioned AI, you mentioned 3D printing of organs, I mean, cancer, but then also I've heard you in, in past conversations also talk about GLP-1s. 
um, some heightened curiosity around those. And I've got to say every week, there's another headline. I saw one today in Bloomberg about what will GLP-1s and Ozempic and the like do for marriages and divorce rates. And it's just amazing some of the unintended and unexpected possible effects of the drug way down the line, Steve. I, I'm curious what you're hearing and where, where does your interest go? What, what strikes you as most compelling about these drugs? Yeah, so um, my, my interest lies in, in a couple of things, but GLP-1s are the way we're, we're treating them make my brain explode. And I'll tell you why. It's not like they came down like manna from heaven. We knew they were being developed. We knew that probably the drug companies weren't going to charge $2.50 for them, right? I mean, you know, the 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 GDP of, of Netherlands went up by, you know, like, uh, you know, five times. Um, and it's like everybody's now just dealing with the fact of I'm an employer and I'm paying, you know, $1,600 a month. And, and by the way, um, you know, we, we're not really sure exactly what the side effects, and if they don't stand the drugs, there's a rebound, and you have half employers say we're not going to do it anymore. And what about bariatric surgery? So, you know, I'm, I'm, the, um, I'm the lead independent director of a New York Stock Exchange company uh, that actually had acquired standard bariatrics. So obviously, uh, the treatment of obesity is really important to us. I'm also on the board of a company called 2030 that was started by my former head of innovation that literally is becoming an honest broker of what people should go on GLP-1s versus bariatrics. So I think I think the GLP-1 overreaction is almost a symptom of the systemic problem we have in healthcare. Mm. I mean, they are a huge advance. So let's start that way. Obesity is a huge problem. So let's start with that way. Just coming up with a magic bullet, not changing habits and not changing, you know, diet or exercise by itself doesn't matter. If somebody is with an employer that covers GLP-1 and then goes to another thing that doesn't, they're going to rebound. So literally, how do we handle obesity? And how do we take all the tools that we have, bariatric surgery, GLP-1s, diet and exercise and come up with some logical piece. And by the way, why didn't we do that a year or two before they got approved? Because that we knew they were coming out instead of reacting now. So that that's where that's where I get I get excited about companies like like the one that I'm on the board of 2030 that are saying, look, let's let's make this a rational decision that five years from now decreases the overall risk of obesity what people should go into bariatric surgery, what people should get GLP-1s maybe at the beginning and then go to bariatric surgery, what people should be on GLP-1s, and, and how are we really studying the true effects of this, both socially and medically? Right. I mean, as you're walking me through it, I, I see exactly what you mean. You said it, the overreaction is a symptom of the systemic problem. And in some ways, it reminds me of the, the workforce dilemmas that healthcare organizations face. I've heard Experts say, you know, we knew this was coming. This has been a problem for a long time. But then now you see all of a sudden post-COVID, it really elevated to a, a pressing crisis. It, it, are there similarities there, Steve, or parallels? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th I think I'll, I'll give you three quick, quick similarities that we know that we haven't dealt with. Okay. okay. One is on the workforce, right? I mean, nurses were treated like commodities. Hey, where are they going to go? Well, they, they showed where they were going to go for like $250 an hour when, when, when they had the opportunity after COVID, right? So Deloitte had done this study uh, called Addressing Healthcare's Talent Emergency that, that, that I had participated in. And 
45% of nurses interviewed didn't think that their CEO cared about them. 35% didn't think that the CEO cared about patients. So literally, you know, the fact is that, that somehow we weren't communicating that, at least across the nation. So we knew that was going to be a problem. We, 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 we could have taken care of it. The other human piece is the consumer. You know, for Harris had done a poll that 62% of people think that we make healthcare complicated on purpose. And, you know, as much as all the digital health and that kind of stuff has happened, it's still too complicated. We know at some point that people are going to revolt to that. And the third one you and I have talked about, we still admit medical students based on science, GPA, med cats, and organic chemistry grades. And we're amazed doctors are more empathetic, communicative, and creative. In the world of generative AI and iPhones, who cares if you can memorize the Krebs cycle? If you're going to be a physician scientist at Yale, great. Have a 3.9 in, in, you know, in, in science GPA and do great on your medcats. But if you're going to go and practice, you know, you know, literally, we want doctors that are empathetic and that look like the patients they serve. And the true tale of two cities, Molly, is that there, there are people in, in Philadelphia or New York or, or Chicago that spend $100,000 to get little Johnny or little Mary five tutors and, you know, in Princeton Review so they can memorize the Krebs cycle and do great on their medcats. Now, that way to matter back when I went to medical school, that doesn't matter now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when, when we did the first medical school in the country back when I was at USF, where we actually chose students based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, and cultural competence, we really, we really like triple diversity. So, so I think these are all things we know. By the way, another thing we know, and, and, you know, I love my colleagues in pharma, but we're one of only two countries in the world that allows direct-to-consumer advertising. And when it started, it was all, you know, the leaves of the world and the, and the you know, the, the erectile dysfunction drugs. Now it's like you, you watch any morning program. Do you have stage four lung cancer? Ask your doctor about. Now, my guess is you have stage four lung cancer. and You're going to a pulmonologist. He or she knows about that drug. But that drug is really expensive and only works on a certain amount of people. And it ends up getting overprescribed. So these are all things that we know. And then we react to drug costs or we act to, oh, my God, GLP-1s are $1,600 a month. You know, like we have to do something about this. So I, I, my whole reason for being in this third phase of my career is how can we be proactive right. around a broken, fragmented, expensive and inequitable system and not blame anybody? I mean, there's enough blame to go around. Just one, one little thing. When I started at Jefferson, I gave a talk for a major national and the guy before me was Austin Goolsbee, who was the chair of, um, of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And this was in 2013. Somewhere in his talk, he said, the next things you don't want to be running for the next 10 years are academics and healthcare." And he had this graph of how unsustainable they are. It just can't keep going on like that. And I was the second person to speak, and I was supposed to be a futurist. I said, well, I must be a really lousy futurist because I just took a job in academic healthcare in Philadelphia, being the president of a university and the CEO of a health system. But but these are all things that we know. And and I think that that the goal and, and my work at General Catalyst, my work at Abundant Venture Partners is to try to really start to look at what are those game changers that aren't just incrementalizing a little bit of a difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, Steve, I think you, you know, you were a great source as a health system leader. I think even now you have a valuable edge to you and that you are a recovering health system CEO. Um, so I think sometimes you can help me better understand the roadblocks and the psyche and some of the thinking that can occur in that space. And the other thing, and you kind of alluded to this with the tale of two cities remark, but health equity, such a pressing concern for big health systems today and in midsize and small health systems too. And the one piece that comes up time and time again, that you hear the executives talking about is access. And it seems like there's a really obvious place to begin with access that I, I just don't see as much competition around. And that's offering more consistent evening hours for people who are working and people who are in school. Why don't you see more systems trying to be the best place for nine to fivers to get healthcare? Well, that's a great question, Molly. I think um, it gets down to who we thought our competitors were. When Sears thought their competitor was pennies, you know, what could go wrong, right? Um, when, their, when their competitor became Target, Walmart, then they had to really change the thing. When their competitor became Amazon, they went bankrupt, right? Mm -hmm. So, and Target and Walmart said, gosh, you know, it, while Sears and Pennies were saying that Amazon East stuff is a fad, and they became Sears and Pennies, Target and Walmart said, hey, we're really good at what we do. You think about them like hospitals and brick and mortar, but we have to be just as good as Amazon and what they do. I think I think where you're going to start to see that change out of crisis is if if Jefferson thought that their competitors Penn Temple Mainline Health, and we were nine to five and they were nine to five, what you'd have to go through to change that and have weekend hours and twenty four hour things, you know, it, it just didn't get done. Mm -hmm. when your competitor is one medical or when your competitor is amazon and you start to see more of that stuff i think we i think we'll have to we will change some of those things it is ridiculous that that you don't have that you literally have monday to friday in, in most academic medical centers maybe some saturday that you don't stagger people and say why don't you work tuesdays to saturday why don't you work wednesday to sunday and then, and then folks complain that, that literally they have high fixed costs. It just, it hasn't been forced on us because, and just like with the payers, if you can get 17 cents on the dollar to be the middleman, you know, and, and that, and, and your stock is going to continue to go up. That's great. Mm -hmm. In the old days, if we could just be more and more inefficient and tell the payers, we needed more money and the payers could tell the employers they needed more money. Now, we've been saying that gig is up for about 10 years, but I think that gig is now up. And I think you'll start to see some of that creativity. And some of that creativity is coming out of the VC world. And, you know, you know, as, as you've reported on at, at General Catalyst, you know, we're going to be owning a, a hospital. So, you know, literally that gives a chance to go and say, this is how you could do it. By the way, you know, have United Healthcare is now the largest provider in the country, right? You have um, Kaiser acquiring Geisinger, not to acquire Geisinger, but to create this entity called Ryzen, which will bring, in, in essence, create nine or 10 health systems that, depending on who you talk to, will be Kaiserized or permanentized. So you're starting to see, you're starting to see these kind of integrations that aren't just, you know, horizontal integrations that are vertical integrations across different places that I think will force that issue. When, when Haven started, you know, I made a, somebody said, boy, aren't you scared of Haven? I said, 
to me, Haven was like the Loch Ness Monster. If I ever saw it, I'd be scared, but I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. But I think the things that you're now seeing, these partnerships really are real, and it will force a change in the system. What we need to have happen is that places that don't change can fail. And that's another thing that there are there are health systems, and I won't mention any names for obvious reasons, but that absolutely ought to fail, that are leapfrog these, that are expensive, that just sell from one you know, entity to another. Um, that's not a market-driven approach. And I think if we start to move more to a market-driven approach and maybe change some of our antitrust laws so that if one of those failing things can get acquired uh, by, by a, a healthy quality health system so that the people are still served, but that doesn't have to go through a three-year antitrust type inspection colonoscopy like we had to do when we went through Einstein, I think those are the kind of things that need to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's such a great parallel about the Loch Ness Monster. I, I haven't heard you say that before. I think that's a great analogy. And then you mentioned the general chaos interest in, in buying a hospital, um, moving into the health system space. I, I spoke with someone a few months ago who it was, I, I won't say their name, but you would have known the name. And they said they were toying with this idea of buying a, a struggling hospital, ultimately decided to forego it. And I pressed why, and one of the reasons he bought up, brought up for not pursuing it was because of the leadership. He said, it's it's a lot of the status quo thinking that's great. And there's a lack of creativity there. Steve, you were recognizing the past for your creativity at Jefferson. Any thoughts on if General Callis buys a hospital, what the leadership should be able to do or how they want you want them to think differently? Any new muscles you want to see added into those ranks? Well, you know, Mark Harrison is leading that initiative, um, and you know, I think you know he'll he'll do he'll do a great job. I think the the question to ask more generally around um, health system CEOs is, you know, I, I would argue, do health system CEOs have to come through health systems, right? I mean, the CEO of General Motors is not a race car driver or or a car engineer. I mean, you take you take the what I what I left. At Jefferson, we've got an 18 hospital system, two campus university with an insurance company, with 45,000 employees. Now, now it's got a Jefferson has a great new CEO, but I, but I would just say you take a complex organization like that. I would argue that that the CEO needs to be a great leader. Mm-hmm. He or she can hire people under them, and frankly, I was a CEO like that. I mean, I spent 60 percent of my time outside of Philadelphia. You know, literally creating philanthropy, a billion and a half dollar campaign and and doing these kind of partnerships. But I had amazing people under me that could run the hospital, run the universities, et cetera. There was one of my ward professors used to say, you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job than you and three that are right. When, when, I, when, when I was at Wharton, I, I wrote my, my MBA paper on the difference in management styles between Captain Kirk and Captain Picard, right? So, you know, Captain Kirk would go, you know, we're going on a weight team. It's going to be really dangerous. One of us isn't going to come back. You know, Spock, Bones, McCoy, and New Ensign Gamble, you go with me. And New Ensign Gamble says, oh, you know, there's no way I'm coming back, right? Um, where, you know, he was the visionary leader. Anybody would follow him. And then Captain Picard, Patrick Stewart, was much more of a manager, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he had the creative people around him. So I think that the, I believe that that's exactly to your point, Molly, I think you hit it. The new health system CEO has to be a little bit more, you know, Steve Jobs-ish around how do I move my system into a very, very different future? 
and not necessarily be the person who got to where they were because they had written a lot of articles or because they had run a different hospital, right? I mean, when I got my MBA, I went out of my way not to get any healthcare courses because I didn't want to learn from the people that had messed up the system. I wanted to learn from other industries that had done it right. Mm -hmm. I think to your point then too, if you're thinking differently, but you have the right team around you, it's always easier to bring things back to, to ground things than it is sometimes to stretch things further out. So if you're thinking differently and you need to be kind of get your, uh, get grounded in reality, teams will do that for you. What's harder to do is to push things forward sometimes. Oh, absolutely. You, and yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and, and look, I had, you know, I, I would, I would wake up in the morning at four o'clock and come up with like, you know, and I would, we would have the cabinet and I said, we're going to do these six things that I just thought of. Right. And then um, my, my chief of staff would hold people back and say, um, these two never going to happen. These two, we really should think about, and let's hold these two in abeyance. So yeah, I had plenty of people sort of allowing me to push the envelope, but making sure that that the envelope was was not ripped op wide open. Because look, we still have to, you know. But but so much of it, though, Molly, and you guys have talked about this a lot at Becker's, is getting people behind you, right? I mean, you know. I learned more. There's a hot dog stand right next to our, our university hospital. I would go out there every Tuesday. And, you know, people would take selfies. And, and I would learn more about the organization at that hot dog stand on Tuesday at noon than I did from any of my cabinet meetings. And I think that, that, that one, of the, one of the lessons I think that's important for any health system leader or wanting to be health system leader is you have to take what is inside of you and have that be your leadership style. When we were going through the trifecta of COVID, you know, losing you know several hundred million dollars during during that period of time, and and the George Floyd protests, I used my DJ history and sent out a playlist every Friday. And when the George Floyd protests were happening, literally, you know, I remember putting out one song, uh, "Choice of Colors." by Curtis Mayfield. If you had your choice of colors, which one would you choose? My brothers, if there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? I must've gotten 300 emails back from folks. I noticed you didn't, we're angry. And I noticed you didn't use the revolution will not be televised. That became my way of communicating. What was cool about that is they were talking to me as Stevie K, the DJ, not just sending some email that my head of communications had, you know, pre-checked and said we, so the ability to have people want you to succeed at every level of the organization allows you to be more creative, mm -hmm. I think. And, and I mm -hmm. think, you know, a, a lot of people try to be something different than they are when they're leading a healthcare organization. Mm -hmm. and, and isn't there too some irony in the fact that some of the best and most authentic and strongest leaders, what they've done really well is avoid that gravitational pull that can be for CEOs, you hear what you want to hear, you get nothing but attaboys and, you know, slaps on the shoulder and the back. Um, and they really do challenge themselves in a way where they're staying attuned to the organism, what's really happening, the real talk, if you will, um, because there's so many spaces and pulls that can get you into this really comfortable bubble. Um, but I would argue that the best really make a point to avoid those tracks and those, those inertias, like, like I said. So, so I think, I think, Molly, it's, it's really, really important that if you're going to be a transformational leader, you can't go 70% of the way to transformation. Mm. I think I had made a decision 
that I wanted, I believe that Jefferson could be the heart and soul of Philadelphia. We become the largest health system in, in Philadelphia, but do it for the right reason of healthcare at any address. Not, not so we could have leverage with insurers or, or any of those kind of reasons. I knew we needed to think about the design of the human experience from the very beginning of when a patient or a person who might have diabetes or, or congestive heart failure, but didn't wake up thinking like a patient, how they could design their human experience. So doing things like merging the 197-year-old Health Science University with a fashion design university, doing six mergers. I had so many people trying to pull me back. You're going too fast. You're going too fast. You're going too fast. And literally, we couldn't stop until we were done. It's like, it's like a marathon. I run marathons. You don't get any credit. You don't get like two thirds of a medal if you get to mile 23. You either, you either do it or you don't. So have the vision, literally, and then complete the vision. And obviously there's some risks to that. And I think the reason there's pushback or pullback is because literally boards and CEOs are so risk averse. I, I need to make sure I'm not going to make a mistake. And I think the biggest risk in 2023 is not taking some pretty big risks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Conflating that 70% with when, like a complete transformation, like you said. Exactly. Or maybe I'll stop now. Yes. You know, either, yeah. either decide you're not going to transform in the most transformational time in our history, in which case you should sell your organization to somebody who is, or, or go for it. Doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be what I've done at USF or, or Jefferson, but figure out what you want to be 10 years from now, mm-hmm. start doing it then and take those risks. You know, and I never, I started my career as a private practice OBGYN. So, I mean, like literally, and I did a residency in a community hospital, the chances of my being an assistant professor at Jefferson, let alone their president and CEO, were probably 0.0%. So, you know, I always felt I was playing with house money. I was going to, I was going to get to this vision with a great team. And if something happened where we didn't get there and, you know, and, and somebody else came, then, you know, we gave it a try. We weren't successful. It turns out we we were really successful, handed it off to a great new CEO and it's going strong. I think that's great advice. Well, I, you know, we just have a, a, a beat. My, my final question for you, Steve, in the time we have, and I knew this is going to be a far reaching conversation and dynamic one with you, but growing reminders now of the 2024 election approaching Bipartisan question for you. What is one specific and healthcare related need you would want to see as the number one priority for bipartisan attention in this next election cycle? Yeah, so look, I believe we actually need like a 9-11 commission for healthcare. I really do. I think I think when you look at the absolute sin that is the American healthcare system, Molly, there are three, I'm gonna be Joanne, there are three countries in the world where maternal morbidity and mortality has gone up. Mm. Bangladesh, Haiti, and the United States of America. So so I think the number one thing, and you brought it up before, is access is is not not just congratulating yourself on the ACA. I'll just leave you with this. There was a, my mentor 45 years ago wrote a book called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. 45 years ago, he said, there's an iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. He was the first person to talk about that in his book. He said, if you increase one angle, you have to increase another. If anybody tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful, they're not telling the truth. So if you want a nonpartisan example of what's happened in the last 16 years, 
President Obama said the ACA will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful to anybody. You know, United Healthcare, your stock will go up. Farmers, your stock will go up. Health systems, you'll do fine. That can't be. President Trump said mine will be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and really huge, and it was none of the four. So we have to decide if we're really going to have the patients be at the center. What's got to get disrupted? And we haven't been willing to do that yet. So to me, I view it very similar to, to you know, what happened in 2001 when we brought a bipartisan group together and said, let's stop blaming the other system. We have a crisis in this country around access, around people getting cancer, that people of color are underserved, people having heart disease. That's untenable that people died during COVID because they didn't have telehealth, because they didn't have broadband. How are we really going to solve that problem? And that would take a really dedicated effort. But it is about access and equity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Steve, I want to thank you so much for your time with me today, for being our guest on the podcast. Uh, I look forward to continuing our work together with your role at General Catalyst and following what you're doing there um, in the VC world. But thank you, as always, for your active participation with Beckers uh, as both the health system CEO in your former life and now in your new capacity, Steve. Always great catching up with you. And Molly, thank you and Scott for everything you do to move healthcare forward. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm-hmm.